Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something, and I hope you'll be inspired to write, because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everybody, all you writers out there. This is Kat Caldwell. Welcome back to Pencils and Lipstick, episode 170. It is February 20th as I record this, and it is finally snowing in Virginia. Two days ago, it was 80 degrees. Yes, the world is going insane. (laughs) I guess we are finally getting winter here. So it's very cozy. I love watching the snow. I actually like it when snow accumulates, but I don't think that this will. I think it's been too warm for that. So wherever you are, I hope that you are cozy or at least comfortable, whether you're driving to work as you listen to this, or if you are just snuggled up on the couch with a hot cup of cocoa. Today, we are talking to one of my favorite people, Daniel David Wallace. He is well, there's so many ways to describe him. He's so zen and knowledgeable and just comes at everything with, I feel like a bucket of information that he's willing to slowly hand, you know, each little nugget to you. And he's just always seems willing to patiently wait for you to digest what he's saying and ask questions if you need to. He's just one of those guys that you feel like, Every time you're with him, like he has all the time in the world for you. So today he has all the time in the world for you, listener, to talk about how he sees story, how he teaches his students about story. He has a very interesting theory that some people might disagree with. (laughs) So you'll have to listen for that. He also does amazing summits and you're going to hear about them as well. I have been a part of them as a an attender and as a speaker. He does four a year and they each have different themes to them. So you're going to want to pay attention. You can click on the links below if you're not driving. Um, you can get over to his website and you can sign up for his summits. You can see who's speaking this time. In March, Tracy Gardner is speaking as one of the many speakers and I find her to be awesome as well. She's a local author here and she's been on the show too. So I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening to this episode. And if you don't know Daniel David Wallace, you're going to want to get to know him. Um, I want you guys to head on over to his website and definitely check him out. As always, if you guys are enjoying the show, please share um, wherever you are listening from, if you would subscribe to it and give it a rating. And if you share it out to your other writer friends or people who are interested in learning about writing, it really helps the show. If you want to support the show, you can click on the link below and you can support the show, but it also really supports the show just to share it, just to listen, share it on your social media. You can tag 
the show at pencils and lipstick, all spelled out on Instagram or pencils, lipstick on Twitter. Um, you can also tag it, <laughs> tag it on Facebook. It's Cat Caldwell Pencils and Lipstick. It gets a little bit long on Facebook, but, or you can just tag me, catcaldwell.author on Instagram, Cat Caldwell author on Facebook. Um, but yeah, share it out with everybody. We have a lot of wonderful, wonderful guests on the show. I think they're all full of so much knowledge um, and they're fun to listen to. So lately, um, what have I been up to? I've been switching gears a little bit with my business. As I said last week, I am going to be focusing more on workshops and writing retreats. And so I've really been digging into that. I have the dates for the writing online writing retreat will be May 16th and 17th. And I'll keep talking to you guys about that as I get the landing page put up. I'm very excited to have um, really written in stone, I guess, the agreement for Tracy Gardner to teach about hooks. And Lewis Georgette is going to teach about the four cornerstones of outlining the structure of your story, which I think is very helpful. Um, and again, you know, everybody has different ideas and different ways that they do things. So I think it's really beneficial to learn from every single one of them, especially if you're new or you are starting a new genre or you are just struggling a little bit. And we all struggle a little bit at some point, right? So it's good to listen to their their view of doing things. There's tons of ways to outline your novel, but there are only a few that will probably really click with you. And Tracy Garner has so many amazing ideas on finding hooks. I love listening to her and talking with her because she always just has these little nuggets of information where you just like, where did you find that out? <laughs> you know, um, and and she will just send you the article and say, here, it's right here. And, you know, how would you incorporate that into your story? It's just, it's so much fun to talk to her. So you're going to have a lot of fun um, with them. The online writing retreat will be May 16th and 17th. There will be three workshops each day with time to write and time to get to know each other a little bit. I'm very excited for this. Again, the landing page will be up really soon for you guys. So right now I'm just going to talk your ear off about it. <laughs> but before that, we will have a couple more workshops. Um, as this goes out, we will be doing the character workshop this week. So it's probably too late to sign up for that. But we will be doing, I'll be teaching about characters, about finding the personality of your character using the Enneagram and the personality traits in the writing retreat. So there's just sort of a little bit of a spinoff of that on, at the writing retreat. I will not be teaching about scene structure at the writing retreat. So in two weeks, March 14th, the scene structure wor workshop, that will be the last one until the fall. And then Jeff Elkins is coming in on March 28th <laughs> to teach about dialogue and the four um, things you can do right now to make your dialogue dynamic and authentic. And he will not be at the writing retreat either. And so we will have him back. Um, but this will be your only chance really to have this almost one-on-one -on -one opportunity with Jeff Elkins. Um, these workshops are meant to be very small. Uh, we're not going to be letting in a hundred people. So you will have a, a pretty intimate setting to learn about scene structure, learn about um, writing dialogue. You'll be able to ask questions. It'll be a really nice, cozy place, very safe place to ask your questions and give examples and learn, um, you know, how to up your writing game. Like, there are so many different ways to learn, right? And I think one of 
one great way to learn is with other writers and listening to people who just have sort of this subject knowledge, right? That that maybe we have a little intuition to it, but it's always good to hear um, from somebody else, right? Who spends a lot of time talking and analyzing dialogue. Who is that's Jeff Elkins right there? He is like a dialogue analyzer. So his day job is also with dialogue. That's why he's so good at it. So definitely check those out. The links will be in the show notes below. Now, a really, really exciting thing I wanted to talk to you guys about is tomorrow as this goes out, February 28th will be tomorrow. So this goes out February 27th. I am part of this book that is being launched and I'm so excited about it. I didn't know in the beginning who I was sort of you know, rubbing shoulders with, I guess you could say. This book is just so exciting. So let me start from the beginning. It is called Launchpad, The Countdown to Writing Your Book. Now, why is this book different and exciting? It has like this incredible balance of inspiration, skill building, and like this toolbox of writing craft tips. Now, each chapter is written by a separate author. So you're going to have a lot of fun reading this book and just seeing the voices of different people coming through. It is a very dynamic book. And each author in their chapter has one topic that they talk about. So they're all different topics. And so we come in really excited and really hot about the topic and just hone in what the reader, you, who is also a writer, can do to develop that topic further. So I write about developing your characters. And so I have examples and I get really into the personalities and I get into why you need needs and desires and why you want dynamic characters. And that's not the only thing that makes this unique. There's also, after each chapter, free downloadable PDF of the top 10 countdowns. So it's not only giving you like the person's theory and ideas and beliefs behind this topic, it's giving you actionable steps to put those into your writing and into your practice. So let me tell you, this first book, when I talk about like I didn't know who I was rubbing virtual shoulders with, listen to who's part of this book. Heather Davis is going to write about is has already written about show and tell. Joe Bunting wrote about scene structure. Genre Trump wrote about publisher ready. Like that's we got to get our books publisher ready, right? We have Carol Van Dem Hend writing about point of view. Mer- Meredith Stoddard writing about tools and research. If you have anything in which you need research, you've got to read that chapter. Stacey Juba writes about grammar and punctuation. Linda Rosen writes about critique groups. Emma Desi writes about book coaching and why you might consider it. And Samantha Skull writes about adding suspense, which is interesting. Like we were all talking together and it Suspense is not just for thrillers and suspense books. Like you need sort of that cliffhanging 
feeling throughout your book, right? To get the readers to keep turning the page. So you need suspense. But sometimes we call that tension. You know, you need that upping of the game in the book. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this book. I think it's it has been a really fun project to be a part of. And it is launching today, February 28th. So the links are in the show notes below. And Emma Desi and Grace Salmon are the ones who are putting this together. Um, and they're going to be coming out with two more books. So of course I will tell you more about it. And next week, our guest is Emma Desi. And so she and I are going to talk about this project and sort of why she took it on and why she's so excited about it. I'm just excited to have been able to really hone my ideas about developing characters and put it into kind of, I don't remember how many words they gave me, like I think it was less than 4,000. So I really had to be concise about what I thought about how you can develop characters and bring out really great um, examples. And the editing process, you guys know I'm kind of a manic about editing these days. I love it. I absolutely love it when people edit my stuff and I learn from it. It's been a great process to work with Grace, who would like ask little questions on my sheet, you know, and so then I could really hone it even more um, so that they've done an incredible job. You're going to want to check this out. Again, it's called Launch Bad, The Countdown to writing your book. So I know you guys can probably hear I am in allergy uh, prison right now, but it's snowing. So hopefully my voice will get better by next week. Um, Right now, you know, there isn't too much to talk about uh, as far as what I am doing other than this um, launch pad, the countdown to writing your book book. Um, I'm just keeping on, keeping on with my writing. I got my edits back and so I'll be working on those slowly. And I am continuing to learn about Kickstarter. So the last thing I will leave you with before we get into the interview with Daniel David Wallace is we have settled on the dates for the the writing retreat in Spain. They will be September 25th to 29th. And the landing page where you can get all the information will be coming shortly. We're just sort of cleaning up some, getting, you know, getting some like signatures, (laughs) I guess, on the place that we'll be staying. So just keep those dates in mind. If you are a planner, 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 and you got to know now, there are some people that who have emailed me and I'm talking personally with them. So just get to my website, catcaldwell.com. And if you're really set on going, but you really need information, um, before we're ready to sort of launch out into the atmosphere, um, just email me, just get on my contact page on catcaldwell.com and let me know and I will speak to you directly through email. Otherwise, we will be announcing that very shortly. So now let's get into the interview with Daniel David Wallace just after our short break to tell you all about Author Accelerator. Some of you have heard me say that I am a fiction book coach. Well, I am an author accelerator, certified fiction book coach. I want to tell you about the author accelerator program. If you are thinking at all about becoming a book coach, author accelerator is on a mission to raise the bar on book coaching to help book coaches run successful, sustainable businesses while helping writers do their best work. 
they have certified and trained more than 100 book coaches, including me, through their book coach certification program. If you're interested in doing this work for yourself, you can click on the link below. There is both a fiction course and a nonfiction course. And if you guys have any thoughts or questions about it, feel free to ask me, Kat Caldwell, about my experience, but I'll tell you right now. I loved it. The course is very in-depth, but it's not overwhelming. It's very well done. And I feel extremely prepared now to help any author who comes my way seeking help from editing a scene to editing an entire manuscript, from getting started to getting it published. It covers everything. And a lot of this stuff I knew personally, but it always helps to really have that vocabulary and the exercises that I had to do behind me. I also had to work with three separate authors in order to get certified and I had to hand in all the work for them to go over. So this is not something where I just buy the program and they give me a stamp of approval. They saw my work, they evaluated it, they gave me feedback and then every month we get feedback from each other on what is working, what is not working and advice and everything else. If you are wanting to look into that and maybe become a book coach in 2023, I would highly recommend you check out Author Accelerator. Daniel David Wallace is an English writer who lives now in the U.S. He's been so long in the U.S. that he claims his accent is starting to wobble. Although I have to say that I love listening to him for his accent. He spent his PhD researching better ways to help people tell stories. After he finished that degree, he began teaching his techniques online. It was one of the best decisions he says that he ever made. Now he gets to share his love of literature, story construction, and sentence craft with thousands of writers, people just like you listeners, every week. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you, well, you might know him already, Daniel David Wallace. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing? Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for for having me here. I'm doing really well. Good. Yes. You're such a busy guy. (laughs) This has been in the works for a little bit, but I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Before we get into it, you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? Yeah. uh, Hi, everybody. I am... I'm a writing teacher uh, online. I've been doing this about six, seven years. Uh, and I run some um, summits. Kat was a fantastic speaker at one of them. Uh, and I also offer coaching and writing classes. And a lot of what I teach stems from this idea of what I call character-first writing, yeah. which is just about helping fiction writers in particular, but I think it can be helpful for narrative nonfiction writers too, just trying to connect the reader more closely to the protagonist, to the person yeah. the story is happening to. I find that solves a lot of problems. Yes, I agree. <laughs> That's probably why we get along so well. Um, I heard of you. Okay, I was running along the river in Spain, my husband's hometown in Valladolid, and you were on the Joanna Penn podcast. And you have an extensive background educationally. So what 
what got you into writing? Was it always about writing to you? Because don't you have your your PhD, like all these university things? Um, shouldn't, shouldn't you be teaching in Harvard somewhere? <laughs> that, that's very kind. And if Harvard's listening, um, please go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I will accept. I'll consider some offers. Uh, I, uh, you know, I was, uh, I mean, I was living in Taiwan a long time ago, teaching English, and I was really getting into fiction writing. Oh, cool. And I had this feeling of like, I should study fiction writing. Really? So okay. That was, you know, that was just how I, how I felt at the time, maybe, you know, and I, I started applying for um, creative writing MFA programs in the okay. U.S. Because I had this, I had been told that uh, if, you, if you got into the right program with the right, uh, the right offer, then it would be free to go. And who told you this? It turned out to be true. Um, I got <laughs> oh, a very generous and uh, very generous, well-funded uh, offer from the, uh, Rutgers University outside of Philadelphia, nice. Rutgers Camden. Okay. And I moved to uh, to first to New Jersey and then to Philadelphia and did my master's degree in creative writing okay. in about two and a half years. Oh, wow. Uh, That's intensive. Yeah, it, it it is. I mean, but I will say that the master's experience is very different to the PhD experience. The PhD thing is what I did next. Oh my word! Um, <laughs> you just kind of get enough, huh? No, I, I I thought like this is going well. Okay, let's see if I can get into a PhD program. So I studied at a, the PhD level, uh, creative writing again, English. Um, I did a lot of read a lot of books during that time. I bet. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, the, the MFA is intense, but it's over fairly quickly. You know, two years okay. go by pretty fast. You know, most okay. people can live in a place for two years. PhD is different. That's like four, five, six years. Oh. It's sort of like going off into space. And when you come back, your town is totally different. Like it's <laughs> it, you, your life has changed by the time the you've changed. Your life yeah. has changed. It's it's a very different kind of experience. And um, okay. one I would encourage people who are interested in it to carefully consider uh <laughs> um we don't want to I, discourage anyone and yet just, carefully consider just you know just something to think about um uh it's 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 a it's a big commitment uh many people find the process to be very you know emotionally taxing but right. i will say that a lot of the vague ideas i had during the the master's level when i was doing my mfa the PhD like really clarified for me. I was just okay. reading all the time. I had lots of people to, to bounce ideas off and talk to. Uh, and, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the ideas I have in my coaching come from that, that period of time. Sure, it's just yeah. studying and studying and, and trying to figure out, you know, what was going on and also yeah. taking workshops, listening, reading people's work, going online as well to Reddit and seeing people critique other people's stories and thinking, wait, what's going on here? Okay. That's where I came up with, you know, a lot of the stuff. So I'm so grateful to the PhD experience. Right. Even if, it, even if it's a, it's a commitment. It's a commitment. So it included like learning to critique things, learning to, um, was it more editing or more critiquing or more like seeing the story as a whole? Like what, what, what experience did you get in that, that helped you with your coaching now? That's a great question. Uh, partly there was the creative writing classes themselves had some great teachers. Mm, yeah, right. A lot of it was just reading books, like okay. reading books and knowing that you had to say something interesting about it in a week. 
Um, and I remember very early in the PhD, I was taking a class on James Joyce, and I was sitting there with a pencil underlining words in the novella, The Dead, just looking for words that repeated and underlining them. And I had this just real breakthrough in how I saw the story. I saw elements of the plot repeating that I'd never seen before. When I'd just been reading casually, you right. get to the end and you're like, oh my God, the ending's really clever. And only through studying, you really start to see things um, appearing. Yeah. Um, in in addition, I was becoming really like fascinated with this idea that where a lot of contemporary fiction falls down is that okay. the reader can't really understand what's going on. Oh. And so one of the things that was really valuable was reading Victorian novels where the narrator just tells you what's going on. Um, yeah, Anthony true. Trollope, for instance, you know, he, you know, he is a wonderful person to study because he just says it like the scenes are pretty driven. It's not like the scenes are boring that, that people are like running around, getting into arguments, lying to each other, stealing things. But before and after Trollope just tells you, oh, he was a coward. What a coward. Who would have thought he could be such a coward? And then he'll wrap up and say, as always, a coward will do this. And <laughs> It really is a. It was really revealing because you're like, actually, this is fun to read. I, I was told yeah, that this would be terrible. I was right. told never show don't tell, show don't tell. But actually, it's pretty engrossing. People enjoy this stuff. And one thing they, one thing you never worry about with Trollope is what is happening. You are always clear, like a hundred percent, every single page, every single line. You're like completely clear what's happening, and that really, really made me sort of think about, like, obviously, I don't want to teach someone how to write an Anthony Trollope novel today, that would be a disaster. But <laughs> how do you help someone writing today right. you know, get a little clearer? Because I think that where a lot of, that's just where I, I, I came to believe that like where a lot of people are are getting into trouble is it's not that their ideas are bad. It's not that they're not working hard enough. They don't have an interesting vision. It's simply that we read we read my stuff, including when I was doing these, writing my own stories, we read my stuff, we read their stuff. And we just don't really get it either at all or enough. We don't, yeah. we're not quite in the story like we'd like to be. Right. Yeah. I I mean, I read, I like Victorian novels. <laughs> I like old novels and I like, um, you know, people write almost like that still in Europe, still today. So I'm like this very eclectic reader. And so what I find frustrating on the writer side of my brain is we say things like show, don't tell and no head hopping and all these sort of like, like headliner things, you know, and then you sit down to write and you're like, well, what does that mean? And then you'll pick up a book that you enjoy and you go, well, isn't that showing and not telling like they're telling and what am I doing? And then you can just get yourself all wrapped up and like, I don't even know. <laughs> it's not helpful. Um, for writers to yeah. get these little quips, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some, there's, there's moments where you read someone's work and you think, show, don't tell, it was invented just to, to try and help you. Because <laughs> yes. often it's like a writer sort of editorializing about their, about a, a particular group of people, about a character, mm. and you think, this would be much better if you could just demonstrate the character doing this right. thing. Right, right. I think it is a, a total misunderstanding of the idea that I think that many people interpret should and tell to be something like characters can never think on the page. 
Mm. You know, a character can never just sort of tell you what is their thinking and feeling. You have to illustrate everything by, you know, I don't know, their hands were shaking. They reached yes. up and touched their hair. And that kind of stuff can work, but it often can leave people totally confused. Why was he touching his hair? You have no idea. <laughs> yes, you know, like, he could be touching his hair for many reasons. Oh, I thought you were just trying to say he had nice hair. Like the reader is totally confused often. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think that it's um, it's very interesting to reread some of the writers that are kind of considered to be the, the starting points of Show Don't Tell. And one of them mm-hmm. is Anton Chekhov, who's supposed to have come up with the idea. And okay. Himself. But when you read Chekhov's short stories, of course, they're full of telling. Right. They, they're full of very vivid details and, you know, dramatic moments, surprises, and they're full of subtle things that you, you know, you you pick up on, oh, touching his hair, interesting. But they're also, the character thinks about things, the narrator thinks about things. And so it's through that kind of combination that we get a very, very vivid, very vivid storytelling. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that almost, you know, that a lot of people would be better off just saying on the page what the character thinks is happening. I mean, usually we don't have a narrator these days. Most people in the American, yeah. British American tradition don't like having an omnate, uh, uh, omniscient narrator talking to us, which is fine. Yeah, that's interesting that you say Chekhov has the the narrator thinking. I'm thinking of a particular story he wrote, and I can't, I just remember like seeing the girl on the back of the wagon, <laughs> you know, like because he's so vivid in his detail that you can see that. I know, I don't even know if I finished the story, but I can see that one. But like, isn't it interesting that he had the character thinking while the narrator's thinking? And like, I feel like today people would be like, you can't do that. You, like, we make these sort of arbitrary, arbitrary rules that won't necessarily make the writing better because it's really about like the storytelling. Don't you think it's like understanding, like you say, the character of the story and what is that story that the character is trying to experience and the reader wants to learn about. And then you can almost break all the rules as long as you're doing it well with the story, but that's hard. to (laughs) It's hard to say, isn't it? And teach. Uh, as, as we've already <laughs> mentioned some some names and books and so on, I thought I'll mention this one book, which is a um, wonderful book if the people are interested in reading this kind of stuff, which is um, Wayne Booth's book called The Rhetoric of Fiction. Mm, okay. And so it's a wonderful, like, you know, semi-scholarly, semi-craft. You could, you know, you know, a working writer could read it for their own interest. Um, and one of the things he makes the case is that when people stopped in the Anglo-American tradition, stop having narrators that would just sort of talk to you about the story is that writers would start sort of trying to like fudge, uh, trying to sort of sneak in bits of old style narration because it was so useful. So they would constantly, you would see things in like the 20th century novel where they would say, he's, it seems like he was blank. Mm. And Booth saying that's the, that's, that's the writer being too embarrassed to say, he was angry because Mm. that's like narrating that's like breaking this kind of anti-narrator thing that had developed but it's too valid you can't just say oh he stood there his hands trembled because nobody knows what that means so you have have these lines in 20th century novels that are like he seemed to be very angry it was as if he was furious i Uh, see a lot of that yeah i mean sometimes i write that yeah yeah, yeah. it's so useful (laughs) it's so useful and 
And so what that made me think, and this is sort of how I try to teach, how I coach, is if we're going to be sort of clear about this, like we can't write like Jane Austen or uh, Anton Trollope today, then we've got to make our main character really, we've got to kind of level up that main character because that's the only person in a lot of our novels doing any internal thinking okay. at all. Okay. You know, we've got, if you've got a one POV novel following one person around, the only place that you can come up with like sort of reflections, observations without doing some odd stuff is your protagonist. You, right. you, you're, you're, you're missing out on, on all the, all the tools that other writers had, you know, a while ago, hundreds of years That's ago. True. And so if if your main character is not sort of constantly commenting on what is happening, what they think, uh, what they feel, what's surprising them, um, then your reader is just sort of like often going to struggle to like just sort of be in the story the way they would like to. Oh, um, that's and you the want I, them in the story, right? Yeah, you want to, like like ironically that the more you try to stick to a very kind of mechanical show don't tell, the more you're distancing the reader because you're sort of saying to the reader, you're across the room and you're watching this guy or girl do a bunch of things. You're not really sure why, but they're doing them. Well, they talk a lot, uh, and it's it's more distant. Whereas if the character picks up the phone and calls someone. And a new person answers the phone. Well, as a human being, your character has thoughts about that. Oh, right. it's Bob, not Sue. I thought Sue always answered the phone, at, you know, in the afternoons. Bob's are tough, a tough nut to crack. I better, I better think of a better, you know, story than I was going to use with Sue. Like that's what we do as people all the time. We're constantly yeah. thinking, oh, the Zoom call is, is, oh, the Zoom call's live. Oh, is my is my hair okay? Right and. If we don't show that on the page, then the reader is just is just sort of lost, uh, or just just sort of distant. Is yeah, the best just way to put there, it. right? I think um, I've been thinking a lot about how it's possible that that writers are now trying to write as though they're watching television, as though the reader's watching television, because, and I think it comes a little bit with like another phrase of ground the reader where the the characters are you know we don't want floating heads or is that what we call them we, you know we have all these like these things that we say as coaches or editors or teachers and it's true we we do want to know where the characters are we want to know if they've moved or shifted but but then like you said we get so distant that we're watching them through a screen almost. I think television has really changed that, right? Like we are watching them touch their hair. And as you said, I just went to a workshop on this and they're like, everyone reacts to anger the same. So maybe, you know, maybe somebody doesn't like touching their hair or only touches their hair when they're nervous. And they're going to assume that the, the character is nervous, not angry, you know? <laughs> like all these weird. So I think what we do is we end up putting the writers kind of in this corner, especially novice writers or people just starting out, because nobody's ever taught this in school, right? Like, even reading, we don't really look at that. We're always looking at theme in high school, right? <laughs> about as far as we get. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll very quickly say uh, my one controversial thought, and I want to come back to what you said about yes. cinematography, which is, I do think that as a writing teacher, I, I personally try to to never try and talk about theme at all, because... 
I find that, you know, when someone's working on their first draft, say, or even the second draft, sort of, this is just me personally, but I think that what we're trying to do is kind of lay down this track for the reader that's based on what the character's experiencing, what the the wider world of the story is, and, you know, what the plot is. Mm. And trying to sort of discuss theme early on is a bit like trying to review your own novel before you've written it. Like, it's, it's sort true. of almost like not for you to decide what the theme is. Let the other person decide the reader's job. That's the reader's job. And I and I I do wonder, just as we're sort of very used to watching TV, which you just think is totally true, we're also used to being in school. And so we're all used mm. to sort of have these like, oh, the theme of the novel is blank. It's like, well, the teacher told us that and the teacher figured out because they read a book about it, but your reader does not have that book available to them because mm, your book right. is brand new or it's not even published yet. So right. there is no there is no century of people doing criticism about it the way there is with Hemingway, where they can tell you, oh, the theme is about blank. The theme is about something else. Um, and it can be a real distraction. Um, and I, and I find I, writers get a bit caught up in theme. It, it's like confuses us. Like, what's your theme? Well, this person goes here and then they do this and this happens. <laughs> and then the writer, I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know what my theme We feel that suddenly like we're in in that school setting and the teachers like has their spotlight on us. And we're like, I feel like there's a right answer to this, but I don't know what it is. I don't know about you, but I and all my clients seem to be like, I, I don't ask me that question. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, I would encourage writers who are listening to this to, you know, uh, I mean, I think that when you are deep into the story, multiple drafts, I don't know, you know, you've got a cover picked out. Then it's time to think about the themes. Can you maybe add a line earlier in the story? But I, I, I really think that like the easier thing to do when it, when we're in a fairly early stage or even a middle stage of writing a book, is to like accept that the theme is something the reader provides. The mm. theme is something that means something to the reader. Uh, it's not. It's that's not really in our control. Um, we would, might right. hope that they do that. But someone with a radically light, different life experience is going to connect to our story in a very different way. Oh, um, interesting point. Yeah. And uh, we can't control that. And um, and I find as well, this is the where it gets a little controversial, is that sometimes talking about theme can be a way to avoid making changes that you kind of know you have to make. Oh, okay. Like people say, like everyone reads a book and says, I don't know why we go to the brother on chapter three. Why are we meeting this brother? I, I don't want to meet him. Who is he? And you and the writer says, well, that's really important for the theme. <laughs> I, I think I genuinely think that happens quite a lot. And it's better to sort of look at it and say, okay, I have this idea about what I'd like the brother to mean. Okay. But I'm is not a sign. I'm not forcing. Right? Oh, sorry, say again. Just saying, like asking, is that coming across? Like you know, yeah. as the writer, it's better to ask that instead of, <laughs> instead of like digging your your heels in the sand and saying, "No, he's he is the theme. He will yeah, bring I it mean, to you." You're not forcing people to read this book in school, uh, so you know you <laughs> you, so you know. <laughs> is that your goal so that you, everyone will be forced to read it? Because that's almost like a just keep reading, you'll figure it out. And you think, yeah. well, lots of people won't keep reading, right? They'll yeah. they'll be like, I. Don't know what this brother's doing. 
And then your point about the cinematography, I think, is so valid. I think that we um, we we have both. We've watched. We all love watching TV. Um, mm-hmm films and even some computer games have this kind of cinematic quality now uh it's easy to sort of get used to that experience of like watching someone do a thing uh but i think that that's very i think that it's dangerous for a fiction writer on two levels Mm. one is that we're not actually filming anything like we we, we can sort of give off the impression that we're filming things oh it was a dark room room with this and that and a blue chair and this but what's actually happening is something much closer to someone speaking to you a voice mm. is speaking to you on the page and it's this peculiar modern voice that it's not really a person it's kind of a narrator right. or it's the, it's the main character talking someone is actually talking to you and they're not you're not actually filming it so no matter how many things you say about the blue chair it's not the same as a movie or a tv series where a prop designer spent an hour finding the right chair and scratching it up a little bit just to give it this right effect. Right. Uh, and I think when we think about that, we take that seriously, then we think, okay, what do I care about in a story? I think it's different. I think we care about human things like mm. longing, like regret, like hope, the hope for something. We We care about like, who is this person that I'm hearing from and are they okay? You know, like yeah. what, what do they need? And I, I think that like there is a sort of desire by many people to sort of describe the protagonist's eye color as if that's how we get to know them. Oh, and there's a few cases of course, where eye color is important in a novel, but right. most of the time, I, I just see it as a misunderstanding of how we're connecting to these people. We're not connecting right. to them as we were watching them on screen. We're, we're right. learning who they are on a very deep level. And that's the connection we're trying to make. Yeah, I agree. I um, I mean, V.E. Schwab made the eye color in The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue really part of that character, right? But, of course. But it, it, it had a purpose. Yes. You know, like she did it on purpose. It was, but I think you're right. It's, um, it requires a lot more digging into the psychology of the character. And, and I, I think you're right. Like figuring out what am I trying to say about this character, the hope, the longing. And what's interesting is when you, when you go back to books that you love, that you read as a reader, maybe not so much for a PhD, <laughs> but as a reader, yes. a lot of times you'll realize well, at least I have gone back and thought they must have, you know, told me a lot about the setting because I can still see it. And I'll go back and they actually have it. Yeah. I just filled it in as a reader, which goes into like allowing being as the writer, we need to allow and sort of let go just as much as the theme, the fill in that the, that the reader will see what they want to see. And actually it will stick with them longer even if it has nothing to do with how you see the story, you know, or that room or the house or whatever. I mean, as a kid, I saw every single house in a book as my house. You know, it didn't matter how they described it. That was the house that I saw. And I, at one point I realized like, that's kind of weird at the, you know, no, the bedroom should be over there. And I realized what I was doing in my head, you know, Um, but, but it goes into, you cannot control that. Right. So, so as a writer, if we're giving, you know, letting go of the theme, 
even though most likely somebody at some point told us to start there and don't start writing until you figure it out. <laughs> we get all this weird advice. Um, and then we're going to look into like a character driven book. You've put, you've, that is how you teach. And so you've put together like different workshops and summits and book clubs and all these things. And is that what you're really looking at when you're um, teaching and you're, you have your students coming to, is that what you're focusing on is getting them to see the character more than, than anything else. And then what happens, like the plot comes behind it or, or how does that work? That's a great question. So it's a um, long one, but (laughs) that's a great question. Um, well, I mean, the, the the very quick, very quick sort of throat clearing answer is, of course, you know, particularly with coaching, you always want to be looking at what the person's trying to do. So sometimes mm. there's always that thing of like, what is actually on the page? And then, you know, is my advice useful? Is my usual advice useful for this story? But in general, what I'm trying to do is I call it like character first, not and I, rather than character driven. Okay. Because... There's a lot of people who don't want to write a character-driven book. They want to write... What's the difference? So to me, character-driven is like people talking and sitting around and slowly changing and improving over time or getting worse. But my advice is just as valid and maybe more valid if you're trying to write a story about somebody punching giant spiders in space. Okay. Because character first is saying that the spiders only matter to us if it matters to someone in the story. And that someone has probably got to be our protagonist because that's the only person we have access to. Right. Because they're the one fighting. Otherwise, why? Why? Well, who cares? (laughs) You you can say anything in a novel and the reader might have a a, a range of reactions or no reaction. So so if we're going to say that these giant spiders in space are a problem, then We've got to figure out how can we make that important to our protagonist and okay. not simply have an old guy with a beard show up and say, you have to save the world from the giant spiders from space. That's that's not going to cut it in, in, with, in today's, um, you know, today's, with today's no. reader. No. What, how can we introduce this character and show them doing things early in the story that help the reader connect to them, okay. form some kind of a bond? And how can we kind of keep that? This is this is like what I in one of my courses I spend a lot of time on this. Like, like I think a really good novel often the the things the character cared about at the beginning they're always important even after we discover the giant spiders. Mm. You know, we're still that stuff was still important. It's not like you know if the character began the the story going out to get a I don't know a glass of you know glass of water for for his partner and bring it back well the partner still needs the glass of water yeah. even though the, the you know we've been fighting the spiders for 100 pages right. like that we're not just abandoning whatever that character's original thing was but that it's always there sometimes it's there as a as a source of regret the character thinks like man i i, I thought i had come here to like make some money but now i found myself in this conspiracy mm. or I, all I wanted to do was become mayor of my town, but now I'm investigating this ancient, this this old conspiracy about land use from 100 years ago. But the, but that that original goal is still there. It's still valid. It's still real, even if that's not what the story is about. We, the story is about something else. But we're sort of doing it justice. Um, uh, 
you know, one of the novels, I talk about this one particular novel all the time because I just I just think it's such a good teaching lesson. It's the very first Jack Reacher novel by okay. Lee Child, where the Lee Child invents in this particular novel a really absurd reason for Reacher to be in the town where the novel takes place. I mean, it, it's it's so ridiculous to even explain it. But the novel takes that very seriously. That okay. that Reacher <laughs> has come to this town to find a totally irrelevant to everyone else. A musician who ever the rest of the world has totally forgotten and it really reacher has no real reason to do it either he's just sort of settled on it um you might see it as a theme or a symbol of his loneliness alienation whatever <laughs> but but in the story there's no reason for it there's no reason okay for it. and yet lee child finds a way to bring that musician back in late in the book that like it's as That's if brilliant. saying okay that was absurd the way i got this whole story going i know but I'm going to take it seriously. It wasn't just like a MacGuffin. It wasn't, you know, an inciting incident thing. It was like taking this, to, taking that seriously. Um, I think that's really interesting. I, I also really am interested in novels where the protagonist spends a really long time uh, resisting what they're supposed to be doing. And okay. I know that there are lots of like, you know, I'm not the first person to observe this in fiction. So there's lots of ways of describing it. But I think that people that that are that often protagonists in successful novels, they're way more hesitant, um, reluctant, uh, poorly informed about the story for much longer than we tend to think. Like they don't really get what is happening until you know, it, it, it depends on the kind of novel you're writing, but I think that, a, you know, often it's like until it's almost too late, but at the very least that, they, they, you know, they're spending a, you know, the first half, the first three quarters, maybe not doing a very good job. Uh, yes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not doing a good job. It's not like on page 10, someone shows up and says time to fight the giant spiders. And then we, we need to, you need to come up with 200 pages of giant spider fighting, but yeah. rather that we're seeing someone who's just doing a terrible job with these spiders and it it you know they, they they're not really investigating it properly they're not good at fighting they they're still worried about their wife and the glass of water like that's what i find really interesting and that's what how i would distinguish yeah. character first okay. which is what i'm talking about to something like first. a character driven novel well as you talk i mean the books that have made it into the I guess best selling or the books that have done the best. I mean, I I haven't did I read The Hunger Games? I think my daughter did. She was pretty obsessed with them for a while. But the storytelling, regardless of, you know, what anyone thinks about writing or um you your prose doesn't have to be perfect if your characters and your storytelling are perfect. And that reminds me of Hunger Games of like, you go back and watch it again, because of course, you know, kids watch things 500 times. And you realize, if she's actually a hero, why isn't she taking advantage of this and this? And why is she doing that? And you start thinking, and but she's, the writer was doing, Collins was doing what you're saying. She's messing up over and over. And she doesn't really realize because what she's going to be set up to be until almost the end, <laughs> you know, like that's a, that's a fascinating thing to point out. Like, because what we're really interested in is what would I do if I was there? You know, like, I mean, subconsciously that's what we're doing, right? As a reader, we're like, Oh God, thank God it's her and not me. <laughs> I mean, I, I think do? that sometimes 
uh, writers, particularly people writers who are writing a kind of fantasy, urban fantasy, sci-fi type story where a normal person is drafted to do something really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I think that we massively overestimate how brave and yeah. capable most people are. We're not. Yeah, I agree. You know, yes. um, we're, we're pretty useless. And, you know, with enormous amounts of practice and training, we can become good at a couple of things. Right. But, and in real life, we're constantly being presented with other things we could be doing than the stuff we are doing, but we ignore it. We just right. we, we would not be able to function if we didn't. But but the reality is that uh, you know you constantly see little things and you're like, oh, I could go to that event, I could talk to that person. Oh, that person seems interesting, but you don't. And I yeah. think that we then create these protagonists who are so eager to go off and do something. All it takes is a little magic trick in front of them, and they're off. And I always want to say no, like you're you're yeah. sort of ruining your story when you do that because, like, that's what the middle of the book is about. Like true. If, if if the character's sort of in the you know in the pilot seat by the quarter mark, what are you gonna do for the next half? Right. There's nothing there's nothing left to happen except you explain a bunch of backstory. Right. So um that that I find that to be really helpful for a lot of people too. Like like the thing you're thinking happens like 10% or a quarter of the way through the book is really like 60 or 75% of the way through the book. If we get there, there are novels. I think Hunger Games is a great example where she's still sort of the final sort of act that that sort of wins the Hunger Games for her is still a sort of act of desperation. It is chance. It is, right. it is a few things come together that she figures out, but it's not like it, it, it's, 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 a, it's, the, it's an act of a desperate person piecing together what she thinks is going to work and she's lucky you know it does work yeah um yeah she's not and i guess that's what we're talking about when we say don't make your character too perfect right and that's a hard one to really understand too it's like perfect what does that mean but you're right perfect would be the person who says yes i will save the world right now i'm gonna go out and learn how to wield the sword and fly the plane up (laughs) whatever whatever it is but really that's the whole that's that's a lot of your book is how do they get to the decision where they come to the conclusion that they better go do it. Otherwise, whatever they won't live with themselves or who knows. Yeah. (laughs) And I think just to get back to your earlier point about cinematography, I think that we've, we've become a bit, we can be a little, um, if we're sort of using this kind of picture of of like the TV shows we've watched, the films we watched, you, you forget what it's like not to have this incredibly good looking good professional actor performing the lines mm. because in a tv a tv show the script is just like a most half of the story and i sometimes see that with dialogue like people are writing out all this dialogue and there's no reactions on the page no one seems to be doing anything and it's like yeah in a script that would be great mm-hmm. because you know pick your favorite actor who's playing the role the favorite actor can emote that's what they do that's what they're that's what they're why they're paid millions of dollars they emote really well but when you're writing you don't have any of that so you need to be filling in stuff all the time that the actor would be providing in a tv show and i sometimes think that people forget this um and and just sort of believe that it's the dialogue alone doing it all and it's absolutely not yeah that's a good point though um and that's i think that's a really good point to think of when you're doing dialogue. And I think that is the main reason why dialogue trips people up is 
really dialogue in itself is just is telling part of the story, right? But when you have Tom Cruise telling your dialogue, he's going to put in that emotion. And you, as I think John Truby says it, like, as a novelist, you have to be actor, director, writer, you have to make sure that the re- the reader understands what your character is saying and what they're doing. And that's tough. It's It takes a lot of work, I would say, but you provide a lot of um, classes, I would say, that can help people learn that stuff. So would you tell us a little bit about um, what you provide for people and um, what where people can go to find that? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I would just like to add one thing about John what Jim Truby said. I think it's kind of a, we've heard that, we've all heard this, or oh, you have to be the director, the actor. Right. And what I would just add to that is you have to do the things on the page. Like it, the, everything you want on the story should be written down. Um, and you can always edit it out later. But like if the characters react, like the characters react on the page, it can't just be like a, anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. So the, uh, my main, I have, uh, I have a main course where I explain all these ideas in a lot of detail, okay. which I simply call plotting and planning a novel. And it is a self-study course um, with, with um, interactive prompts that uh, guide you to a certain um, to imagine how you might use the techniques of the course in your own writing, with with and the, the usual videos and 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 uh, little mini essays on the different ideas. And the, the course tries to sort of take people through firstly just this idea of like how is someone reading a book, what is going on, why do they stop reading, and then tries to then build up some 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 building blocks and then says well here's how we might build a plot out of this mm-hmm. um uh people can also try out which i recommend for listeners to the podcast my free um uh, short story course which is called okay. character first story and that you can find it i think at characterfirststory.com and this is a free course it has 12 lessons that it comes out by email and it's self it's self paced. So if you interact with the the materials, the the you get the next email immediately. If you don't, it comes in in a day, and it basically talks you through designing a short story where a bunch of stuff happens. There could be ghosts, there could be magic, there could be all kinds of stuff, but it's character first. So we're okay. connecting deeply to the main character, even in a short short story um, situation, and then. Um, so I recommend people trying out that first. And then very finally, I um I also run as you mentioned already, some summits every year. Mm-hmm. I run so far, every year I've run three summits a year, um, different parts of the writing craft, and they're a great experience and they have paid and free tickets. So I try to offer a range of things for writers of all backgrounds, right? Income You're, situations. And every summit's a little bit different, right? Just on the the part of the craft, I guess, or the theme of the the summit's a little bit different. Yes. So uh, every October, I do a, a summit on plot called Escape the Plot Forest. And then in um, March, I'm doing a, uh, a summit on um, the writing process called Perfect Your Process. Awesome. And where can people find that? Because this people will be listening to this for the first time in the beginning of March. So they'll have time to go and check it out. So where can they find it? Oh um well uh I'll I'll share the link I mean we'll share the <laughs> link in the show notes but um if you I think it should be um uh, summit.perfectyourprocess.com 
And if they go to Daniel David Wallace, they can get on your newsletter. And that's yeah. that's and, when and I always find it. out that you have... And they'll have, hear about so. it extensively from me, yes. Perfect. Um, definitely subscribe to my, my mailing list to find out more. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, it was lovely to talk to you. I love hearing your ideas on craft and writing every time we talk. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.